I'm often asked questions like, what should a believer's response be to fill in the blank? How should Christians respond to and fill in the blank? Because we live in a wacky world, and a wacky world causes us to wonder, what on earth, how are we supposed to respond? And I wonder how many times you've been asked that. How many times have you been asked that? How many times you might have asked that of yourself? How am I to respond in the midst of this? Well, I also wonder how many times I've responded way too far down the road forgetting the foundational things. Responded to the specifics of that question, a certain struggle someone's going through, a certain misunderstanding, a certain reception of, of lies and how they deal with those, and I just buzz right to the heart of that issue rather than setting up the foundation. Because the Bible gives us certain things that are foundational for us as we live in this life. The Bible reveals to us certain things that we do. And so there, there is a response that actually fits all of those as a primary response. What should I do in the face of this? How should I respond to this? What is my role in this? There, there's a response that fits all of those. And that response that we find in, in the Scripture, that answer is thanksgiving, praise, and proclamation. Thanksgiving, praise, and proclamation. You see, that's what we're called to do. We're called to give thanks. We're called to give praise to God for, for many things in the Scripture. We're called to praise Him for that. But we're also called to proclaim all of those glorious deeds to the nations, to all of those who don't yet know Him. So if that begins to be our foundation then really the answer to the question, how do I respond in this or how do I respond to that? How do I live in the midst of this? Has a foundation that once we start in, uh, implementing that on a regular, consistent basis, all the other answers seem to become clear very quickly because this is how we've been created. See, Isaiah called Judah to repentance over and over in the first 11 chapters, did he not? He called them to repentance. He held out to them the glory of the future. He held out to them the promise of a remnant. But he's constantly itemizing what they're doing that God does not appreciate and calling them back to repentance because he knows that if they repent, they're returning to God. They're returning to the one who brings redemption. They're returning to the one who has promised the remnant. And after 11 chapters, we have chapter 12 which is this breath of fresh air to us after 11 chapters of, of criticism of sin, rightful criticism of sin and judgment and just hints of the future, sometimes grand and glorious hints, but now we have this wonderful chapter of praise. It's as if Isaiah can't help himself, but it's also as if Isaiah understands that this is the root of every issue. This is where those who are God's people need to stand. This pattern is found throughout scriptures. Um, Alan Harmon, in his commentary on Isaiah, writes, very fitting that the book of Emmanuel, he calls chapters, either beginning in chapter 6 or 7, I don't remember, but 6 through 12, the book of Emmanuel, in his analysis of Isaiah. I, very fittingly, the book of Emmanuel, and indeed the whole of the first 12 chapters of this prophecy, concludes with a song of praise. In the biblical doctrine of salvation, praise forms an important response on the part of the believing community. Think of the song of Moses, the song of Deborah, the song of Hannah, the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and the songs in the book of Revelation. And indeed, that is true for us. We have these examples of people, God's people, receiving his blessing, seeing his glory, and they break out into song. They break out into praise. If you search for how many times singing and, and praising like this in a singing voice is mentioned in Scripture, well, you'll have your Bible study for the next couple of months because it will constantly, especially in the Psalms, tell us that our response to these glorious deeds that God has done, the most glorious deed, the salvation of His people, should result in the praise of His people. So this is our call. It's the pattern of Scripture. It's what we find in Isaiah chapter 12. It is our call as well. We have been redeemed. We have brought into a worshiping relationship with our triune God, and that should result out of, as, as an 
in an outflowing of thanksgiving and praise and proclamation. It's our first response to anything, and it will change all of our responses, will it not? If we are singing the praises of God, living in the joy of our salvation, having faith and trust in the God of our salvation, living fearlessly, if we are and proclaiming that all of his deeds to the nations, then our plate is already full. We know exactly how to respond to most of the situations. Then when somebody wants to engage us on the particulars, we're doing it out of that kind of life. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that and what is the content of our praise that's what Isaiah intends for us to hear this morning. He intends to hear this. He intends us to hear this foundational position of God's people, what their praise looks like, what their thanksgiving is for, and calling us in community to this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 12 and stand as I read our chapter this morning. Isaiah 12, just these verses 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for, through, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw near, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to Yahweh, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Well, in these verses, we witness two verses of a song of praise. Two verses of a song of praise. Now, I want to draw your attention just to these lines in 12.1. You will say, in that day, and also in 12.4, and you will say, in that day. Now, if you were here last week and did your study of, of all of chapter 11, you'll know that in that day rings a bell for us. So turn back to chapter 11 and look at verse 10. And verse 11, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glory or glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Now jump down to verse 16. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now, last week, we looked at these, the last two weeks, actually, we looked at the grand texts in chapter 11, and we said that there was the inauguration of the kingdom that's mentioned in 6 through 9. And we know that because it begins with the promised Messiah coming and his character. That's the way the chapter begins. And then it's inaugurated when Christ comes and lives and dies and is raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But it is consummated when he returns again. So the perfection in verses 6 through 9, we taste now and already. And yet the ultimate fulfillment is not yet. It will be in the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. So when we see... At the end of that chapter, this, this mention of the remnant and the highway that we see in verse 16, the, the, there will be a highway from Assyria for the, remnant, for the remnant that remains of his people. We have this picture of the salvation that is coming to the remnant. So the salvation that comes to us today is the same. It's through the Messiah that's promised in chapter 11, who comes, that we see coming in the Gospels, who came and lived and died and raised, was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we have entered into our salvation through the highway of Jesus. 
He's using that Old Testament language there in chapter 11 to talk to old covenant people of how they come back to God. But when we see Jesus as the fulfillment, we see him exploding all of chapter 11 into the full reality that we experience now and the fullest reality we will experience then. So when we move into chapter 12, he has a word for the remnant, for the believing remnant. Remember, the remnant just isn't a group of people. The remnant is the group of people who are God's possession, who are responding to him as God's possession. They're responding in repentance and in faith. That is the remnant. And God has promised that remnant all through the Old Testament because Christ comes from the remnant. The promise is that the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful heir to the throne of David, will come from God's people, and God pervert, preserves the remnant so that that will happen. So when we see in verse 1 and in verse 4, in that day, this psalm of praise is tied to that. And if it's tied to that, it is already and not yet. It, we, it is something that we do now today as people who have entered into our rest in Christ, but will fully in, enter into it then. This is, this is a picture of the life of a believer today. It's a picture of the life of the remnant. It's reminding them of all the promises of God and what he has told them, and we see them fulfilled in Christ, and all of those promises are ours. So these two phrases, in that day, in that day, mark off the verses of this hymn. And it's definitely in a hymn form, a song-like form, which is appropriate given its content. So verse 1, thanksgiving and proclamation, salvation. Thanksgiving and proclamation for our salvation. The first thing we see is the congregation is called to give thanks for their salvation in verse 1. You will say, and this you here is singular, a masculine singular you. Those things are hard to see in an English translation and unless you have the King James who tries to use the these and thous and those kinds of words which may say, seem archaic to us, but they're very helpful in understanding these kinds of things. You, singular, will say in that day. So Isaiah is speaking to individuals here. He could be speaking to the nation collectively, speaking like I would to you if I used the word you, speaking of this group. And, and there's truth to that, but I think he's speaking individually to the individual people in the first parts of this, of this hymn. You will say in that day, so in the day of your salvation, this is what you will say. I, again, the singular idea, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So it's thanks for their salvation. And look at how clearly it is brought. The first thing we notice is the first thing commanded is to give thanks. And it's, it's just assumed. Isaiah said, this is what you will do. You are the people of God, and this is what you're going to say. And, and it is a command in the sense that this is what people do, but it also flows from us if we're believers. If we're believers and have received the salvation of the Lord, the first thing that comes out of us is thanksgiving. And that's why he says, this is what you will say. I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me. Now remember, all the way through this book, we've seen God angry at his people, right? For their sin. And he has a right to do that. He also has a right to turn away from that anger when they repent. He's wrapped that up in his character. When he revealed himself to Moses and, and he put Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by him, this is the way his self-disclosure said, I will, I will do what I please in this area. And so the beauty of this, though you were angry with me, you turned away that you might comfort me. So it's not just a turning away, is it? That would just leave us. It would leave us without the comfort of the Lord. He, he might not be angry with us, but we don't know what's coming next. We know we're sinners. We don't have any idea what's coming next. So it's not only that. It's that you will comfort me. This is an idea that's going to come full force when we come into the second section of Isaiah. When, when we finish with the first 39 chapters, when we're all 107 years old, and we finish with the first 39 chapters, chapter 40 will begin like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. 
And it goes on with that kind of hope. And, and that section, the beginning in chapter 40, is full of that kind of comfort. But in this, we also see not just the, the promise to old covenant Israel, but the promise to the new covenant believers who are now in Christ, Israel and Jew and Gentile, who are in Christ, because this is exactly what happened on the cross, is it not? God, who was angry with us, and we were dead in our trespasses of sin and sin, headed toward destruction, headed toward e eternal punishment, that's the way the Bible puts that, that destruction. It's eternal punishment. We were headed that way until God took the anger, the, the wrath that was directed toward us as sinners and placed it on his son. That's what happened on the cross. But it was a propitiatory sacrifice. Remember, we learned that in 1 John 2, right? 1 John 2, 2. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. It's that big $3 word that means God placed his wrath on Christ instead of us. But that offering, the offering of Christ himself, caused God to turn toward us in favor. We weren't just left where we were after that. It caused God to turn toward us in favor because of his son, because of the offering that was given. So this uses the language that lets us see Jesus in that, that he's, he's not just turning away from us, but he's turning toward us in favor. He's turning toward us in comfort. So we it's not that we don't deserve it. It's that Christ didn't deserve it, and his anger was placed on Christ who didn't deserve it so that we might have life with him. It's the miraculous exchange, is it not? It is the miraculous exchange, that substitutionary atonement where Christ dies in our place so that we have God, a relationship impossible without that propitiatory act, uh, sacrifice. So this is the basis of the thanksgiving. This is another way of saying salvation, isn't it? You were angry with me, but now you're turned toward me in comfort. I deserved your wrath, but now I have your comfort, your love, your protection, your care, as evidenced by the fact that we are the remnant, Isaiah would tell the people. So the congregation is called to give thanks for their salvation, but we also see the congregation proclaims their trust in the God of their salvation. Look at verse 2. He continues this thought. This is what the people now say. Behold. So, so this is wonder. This is, this is not just, hey, take a look at this. Did you see this article? It's not that. It, it is an exclamation of praise. Behold, look at, fix your gaze upon this truth. God is my salvation. Now notice what that says. We say things like this. God saved me. Jesus saved me, right? As if, and, and it's true, we're a recipient of it. But in that salvation, it is Jesus himself that's salvation. The only reason he can give us salvation, the only reason he can save us is because he is our salvation. So this is the center idea here. God is my salvation. When he saves me, I'm not just getting his comfort. I get God. Wonder of all wonders that we as sinners, enemies of God, because of the work of Christ, get God himself. Because not only are we saved, but we get the God who is salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. And if he is, it exudes out of me in this kind of way. I will trust, in other words, I will trust in him. If he is my salvation, who else would I turn to? He would say that to the king of Judah, wouldn't he? Why are you going to the king of Assyria and trusting in him? If you don't stand firm, you'll not stand at all, Isaiah would say. So appropriate for him and so appropriate for us. It's so easy to put our trust in things other than God who is our salvation. And sometimes we don't even mean to, do we? We just look back and realize, wow, God took that away from me and my whole world fell apart. So we realize that our trust was in something other than the God who is salvation. So if God is our salvation, we will trust and will not be afraid. This is why it's so common in the scriptures to, for, for God to command, especially through his angels, these miraculous, almost overwhelming beings, fear not, fear not, because we have Christ. If we have Christ and the wrath of God, the thing to be feared above all things on, ever, ever, that any human could ever fear, the wrath of God has been placed on Christ. If the greatest thing to fear an angry God has been placated through the work of Christ, and now he comforts us. Now he is, he is present with us. He resides in us. What on earth 
could possibly cause us to fear. And yet we fear, don't we? We fear the stock market crash because our faith and trust might be in our 401k. We fear the loss of our job because our trust is in the money that it provides or the authority or fame that it gives. We fear the loss of our children because we think we will not have anything to live for because our faith is in our children instead of the God who gave us the children. Have I hit on enough places that hurt? It's easy for me. Is it easy to, for you to just fear things in this world? Even just to be anxious about something shows that we're fearful of it. If we're anxious about it, it means, well, I can't control the end of that. I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm going to get all worked up about this. What are we saying? We're saying we fear it. Well, if God is our salvation, the Scripture tells us clearly that we will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. This is the result of the salvation. It's not just something we gin ourselves up to and say, oh, I'm not supposed to be afraid because God is my salvation. Because God is our salvation, we have all people are the ones who can walk through the world, and nothing should cause us fear. It doesn't mean that we aren't concerned about things. We don't try to stop things unjust from happening. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean we will not be undone. We will not be, we will not be pulled away from our calling. We will not be pulled away from our God. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Why? Look at the four in the middle of verse two. For the Lord God is in the ESV. It's literally Yah, a shortened form. Yah, Yahweh. Fairly rare in Scripture to, to use this form. It kind of ties us back to the Exodus wanderings, which chapter 11 is, is steeped in those images, and we have them here too in chapter 12. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. So this, this verse bookends with God is my salvation, God has become my salvation. But in the middle are the effects. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Why? Because the Lord God is my strength and my song. So the strength, right? We know in the New Testament that his power is made perfect in our strength, right? Somebody correct me quick before that becomes a sound bite, right? It's in our weakness, right? It, it doesn't mean that God hasn't equipped you with strength and power, but it means that your ultimate strength comes from the Lord and his will in your life. And when you are submitted to him, even in your weakness, God is made the most strong in your weakness because he is a comfort for his people. And he undergirds them and he strengthens them for the calling that he has given them. So when he is, when he is our salvation, he is our strength. That's how we are not fearful of anything. We tend to be fearful of things that can overpower us right? Well, if God is our strength, he is the ultimate power in the universe. There's no one who has power more than him. He has all the power. So we are the people who, as we live, we recognize that he is our strength, so we will not be afraid. But it also says, he is my song. It's a wonderful picture here that when we sing, we sing him. Not even sing about him. We sing him. He is our song. If we have anything to sing, it comes from the fact that God is our salvation. And he's going to unpack this a little bit more, but just get that basic foundational principle. If you are saved, you have a song, and that song is God. Specifically Jesus for us, but it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in all of their work and in, in, in all of their miraculous doings and how they function as the triune Godhead. That, that is our song. That's what we sing about. Now, we're going to talk more about singing later on in this, but the foundational truth is for us. Our song is God. Now, that guides our philosophy of worship here. We don't want to sing songs that don't direct our hearts to God. We want to sing songs that exude the truths of the Scripture so that we disciple one another. Now, I don't want to get too far into this. I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. But if God is our song... Not, that you, not merely that we sing about him, but he is our song, then our singing should be dictated by what we know about God through his scriptures. Foundational truth for our theology of worship. So we have, in the first verse, thanksgiving and proclamation for salvation. The congregation is called to give thanks for their salvation, and the congregation proclaims their trust in the God of their salvation. So I want you to notice here, I believe the you that are the yous that are singular here are talking about individuals within the community. It could be collectively talking about the community, as I've said, but he's going to collectively talk about the community with plural yous in just a minute. 
So here he's talking about individuals because salvation comes to us individually. We are not saved as a group. You're not saved. If, if you're a young person in here and you think you're saved because your mom and dad have faith, that's not how we're saved. If your wife is saved, so you think, well, I'm good. I'll ride in on her coattails or your husband. It's not going to work that way. You are individually saved because you individually repent of your sin and place your trust in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. So it is individual salvation. But one, I want you to notice we had a shift here in our second verse. Individuals are never saved under themselves. They're saved into a family. They're saved into a community. They're saved into God's people. So in the second verse, beginning in verse 4, thanksgiving and proclamation, his name and his deeds. So we still have thanksgiving, but now we're adding the proclamation in the community, and it's about his name and his deeds. Look at verse 3. With joy, you. We'll just stop there. That you is plural. So the individuals in the community who are saved have been commanded to give praise to God for their thanksgiving, to not, to not fear because they're trusting in the God who is their strength and their song. That's the, the individuals, but the individuals come together as a group. And he says again, with joy, you, plural, notice joy, fronted right at the beginning, joy, not frozen chosen, joy, not teeth gritted amongst the world, and yeah, I love Jesus too, I can't wait for heaven. Joy, that should mark us. It should mark, one of the first things people should see about us is that we're joyful. Can I preach to the choir here for a minute? I'm not always joyful. It's convicting for me to see fronted among all of this is joy is what overshadows everything he's about to say. How about you? This exudes from us because, again, repetition is the key to knowledge, right? We are the people who have received the comfort of God. He is no longer angry with us. We are in his possession now. We have access to him. We don't need the sacrificial system as the old covenant uh, people did because we have Jesus, the once for all perfect sacrifice. So we have entered into the presence of God. So anything we suffer in this world, we can do with joy because our eyes are on the next. And that's the way the New Testament holds it out to us all the time to remind us what is coming. So with joy, you, plural, the congregation, will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now this is like center of our verse right here. Will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this picture is used throughout Scripture about the wells of salvation. Of salvation it is used to picture the, the grace that's given to us. And when you hear this term wells and you will draw from them, it gives you this idea that they're never going to run dry. This is, this is eternally. You are drawing from these wells. You don't draw from it and then need it again. It's an eternal drawing. This is the idea here that is brought to us through so many passages. Uh, more than 100 years later, Jeremiah will rebuke uh, the people of Judah, um, right after they have been, or maybe right before they have been taken into captivity. Um, in Jeremiah 2.13, when we read, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. So the two things are you've rejected the living water and then you built cisterns that are cracked, that can't hold any water, and you're looking at them saying, why don't we have any water? Why don't we have any water? That's the twofold error of Judah in Jeremiah's day. This is what Jesus deals with with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman, beginning in verse 9 of John 4, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John tells us in parentheses, he reminds us, just so we know the background, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is the, the water in the well. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will, be, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The same language is used by Jesus when he describes the New Testament view of salvation to this Samaritan woman. And just three chapters later in chapter 7, on the, in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, that is the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, Listen, he cried out. He's not quiet about this. He's, he's at this place and he is crying out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, John tells us, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is a metaphor that's used throughout Scripture that the Israelites would have known. We know, we understand this well. It's Jesus himself, and it is eternal. It is never-ending. Enter into your salvation, and you cannot lose it. There is no way you lose it unless you provided it for yourself. But if the one who died provided it for you, if you have him, you're in union with him, he will not lose any that the Father has given him. It is eternal and it is secure because those who are in Christ are constantly drinking from the wells of his salvation. So the congregation vows to give thanks to Yahweh in verse 4. We've kind of changed into the verse in verse 3, but verse 3 holds both verses together. The joy that we have for the, the, the salvation that we have, but also how it works out of us. So in the second verse, the thanksgiving and proclamation, his name and his deeds, the congregation vows to do several things. Now we're going to get to a point in this outline where I'm going to change it a little bit because what you're going to see on the screen is not what I want it to be, and I'll tell you where that is. Um, the congregation vows to do six things here. First, give thanks to Yahweh. Look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, so the voice, Isaiah, telling the congregation what you will say when you receive your salvation, and then he begins this list, speaking to each other. This is the congregation singing to each other, talking to each other, encouraging each other. Give thanks to Yahweh. So there's the reminder to give thanks to him. That... When the New Testament says give thanks without ceasing, give thanks for all things, it is a state of being for us. We are joyfully giving thanks about all things. We're never called just to endure. We're called to endure giving thanks, knowing, as we sang about in our hymn of the month, that it will produce Christ in us, that as we walk through the trials of life, Jesus is working in us, conforming us to his image, sanctifying us so that we are more holy than we were before the trial. But secondly, not only giving thanks, but calling upon his name. Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name. So what does that mean? What does it mean to call upon his name? It, it can also mean to proclaim his name. So we're calling upon his name for the strength that he promises to be for us. We're calling upon his name for all the blessings that he gives us. But we're also proclaiming his name to each other. Luther, in his translation, he, he translated this, preach. Preach his name to each other in the congregation. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get to the last verse of singing. But give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. If he is our salvation and he is our strength and he is our song and he is the one who is comforting us, why would we turn to anyone else? Why, king of Judah, have you turned to the king of Assyria? Why do we turn anywhere else but to God himself? Give thanks to him, call upon his name. But thirdly, make known his deeds. Look at, the, look at the next line. Make known his, that is Yahweh's, deeds among the peoples. And then fourthly, proclaim his name is exalted. That's the next line. Proclaim, proclaim that his name is exalted. You see the expansion here? When we are proclaiming this, when we are encouraging each other with the name of God, with the name of Jesus in New Covenant terminology as well, not only God the Father, but God the Son, when we are giving this to each other, we are making known his deeds among all peoples. Remember, this is why people come to the mountain in the Old Testament. They have in Isaiah, they do in the Psalms. They're coming to hear because Israel, God's people, 
are living in such a way and talking in such a way that they're being drawn to Israel's God. We are the people that joyfully live in such a way and talk in such a way that when we're doing this all the time, giving thanksgiving, praising, and proclaiming, the nations, those who do not yet know Christ, all the peoples are drawn to us as God draws them to himself. He uses us in the midst of it. You see how we've moved now not only in the congregation, but the congregation moving into the world. Well, I've also said there are five and six. In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 5, we have two more things. The congregation vows to sing praise to Yahweh for his works and make Yahweh known in all the earth. This is where I'll lose you, Michael. Just go ahead and, and do what you need to do with it. Sing praise to Yahweh for his work and make Yahweh known in all the earth. Look at verse 5. Sing praises to Yahweh. Why? For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. So when we're singing praises to Yahweh, we're singing praises for what he has done, and that is both the reason, the grounds that we sing, and it is what we sing about. And we're letting this praise be made known to all the earth. It's another way of saying proclaiming the exalted name of God, and when we do so, those who do not yet know him hear us proclaim and are drawn to him as God demands. So this singing praises, this is constant through Scripture. I mean, I've known people who have told me, yeah, I don't really get off on all that singing stuff. I just put up with the singing to get to the preaching. And I say, you miss. First of all, you're missing blessing. Second of all, you're not, you're not worshiping according to the Bible because the Bible tells us to sing. The Bible tells us to sing more times than we, If we started a read-a-thon of all the places that the Bible talks about us singing, you wouldn't get lunch or dinner. You might make breakfast, but you're not going to get lunch or dinner. There's a plethora of these scriptures. The New Testament tells us that when we gather together, you hear me quote these verses all the time because it is part of our theology of worship here, and I want you to understand why we do what we do. We are to sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in that singing to one another... The word of Christ is dwelling richly among us. It happens in the preaching. It happens in the reading of the text. It happens in the praying. It it even happens in the fellowship when we're Christ-centered, giving thanks and proclaiming and, and praising God even in our fellowship. But it happens in our singing in a way that is is memorable. I can tell you that more people will remember the songs that we sing than the sermons that I've preached. And you're going, that's true. I was getting ready to say that. Somebody beat me to it. I'm going to say it anyway. I know that to be true. Why do we teach our children Scripture by telling them to sing the Scripture? Because they remember. We sing because, it's not just because we remember, but when we sing, we remember. We remember what we sing. We can remember Scripture. We can remember truths about God. And if we are believers, God is our song. Christ is our song. We have a song, and that song is not a song unless it's sung. So we sing to one another. We sing to one another the truth of God. J.I. Packer once said this, I've experienced God's presence most powerfully in worship. Often during singing, so he's drawing attention to corporate worship, more powerfully corporately than individually. We are to worship individually, amen? In all things that we do, we are to live our lives as acts of worship. But when we gather corporately, it's different. There's something God is doing among us that he is not doing in the same way individually. So I've experienced, Packer says, God's presence most powerfully in worship, often during the singing, I suppose because when we sing to him, listen to this, we are looking hard in his direction. Isn't that beautiful? When we sing to him, we are looking hard in his direction. We are singing words that are from our head, that's coming through our voice, out of our heart. We sing them, and we might sing them repetitively because we sing songs more than once. We might not come back to this scripture passage ever again in our worship service other than just to read it. It may not ever be preached again. In fact, it probably won't be. But we will sing the songs we sang this morning again. And every time we sing them, they sit deeper inside of us. So the Bible tells us that we are constantly to be singing and we are to be even singing new songs. So we are to take these truths because what are we singing about? God and his glorious works. And that, that is the content of our singing. The content of our singing is the revelation of God and what he has done. Alec Motier says this, 
about singing. Isaiah makes two important points. First, song is called for not as an expression of inner elation. Do you get that? Not as an expression of inner relation, but as a response to the works of the Lord. It arises not from a stirring up of emotion, but from bending the mind to recall, ponder, and understand his majestic deeds. Secondly, true joy in what the Lord has done overflows to the world in sharing this goodness. It overflows to the world in sharing this goodness. Our worship is, it's, we worship because God has called us to. He wants worshipers, John says, in that same passage, John 4, who worship in spirit and in truth. We're worshiping him, not us. We're worshiping him, and we worship him on the basis of how he's revealed himself. That's why we have so much scripture reading in our, in our worship services, because we want to respond to the revelation that God has given to us. And that's why you're in the word all the time. You are responding to the word that God has given us. It's going to be really hard for you to get up in the morning and say, I am joyful, and I intend to give thanks and praise and proclaim if the Bible is gathering dust on the counter where you left it this afternoon when you get home. Because that flows out of the revelation of God, of himself to us, that overwhelms us. The spirit inside of us just leaps for joy when it's fed, when he is fed the truths of the scripture. He leaps for joy inside of us and the song comes out, the joy comes out, the strength comes out, the dependence, the faith that we have. So this kind of worship, this worship that it flows out of our salvation because God is our salvation, and God is our song. This worship that is grounded in what he has done. This is why we sing about his marvelous acts. We don't just sing love songs about Jesus, right? We do sing, my Jesus, I love thee. That's not wrong to sing, but we're not singing because Jesus is our boyfriend. We're singing because he's the God of the universe who died on a cross and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are seated with him if we are in union with him. And so we sing about him with joy informed by the truth of the word. I'm convinced that many people in the songs that they sing in churches, they're growing up knowing nothing but their own emotional response to the Jesus that's preached from the pulpit, which does not follow the word close enough. I'm not trying to condemn everybody else. I'm trying to warn you, don't do that. Don't let us do it. We, we want to worship, sing, and respond to the revelation of God in a way that's appropriate. Isaiah brings it to us. We're doing it with joy. We're doing it with thanksgiving. We're doing it with praise to him and proclamation to the world. Do you see the joining of this? Look at how this flows. The experience of salvation leads to mission. The experience of salvation leads to mission. First of all, worship. Individuals saved, gathered together in corporate worship. But that song that we sing, that song that we sing, the song that's on our lips, the song that you're singing when you're not in corporate worship, the message that you're given, the proclamation about Jesus that you give, that is for the nations. That is for all those who do not yet know Christ. Let me show you how this is a prominent theme. We're not going to look at all the passages, but we're going to look at three psalms. Turn, keep your finger in Isaiah 12 and turn to Psalm 67. Just back, back a few pages, Psalm 67. And I want you to notice these same themes. Salvation and proclamation and thanksgiving and singing and the role of the God's people to the nations. We sing Psalm 67 in a couple of different contexts, in a couple of different versions. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Turn over to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. We often hear the Old Testament is just about the salvation of the Jews, and it's so far from the truth. 
God has always been about saving a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Always. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Jump right over to Psalm 98. Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Bring forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and, and with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, Yahweh. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let all hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Over and over and over, the themes of God as the righteous king, the righteous judge, and the call from his people to the nations, for all the nations to come. His salvation... And him being salvation is the fuel for our evangelism. This is what Jesus said when we went through this in John chapter 17. I'm not going to go back through it again. There's a sermon on all this not very long ago in our archives where Jesus says he's completed the work the Father has given to him, and that, that work is the salvation of his people. And therefore, he sends us into the world so that the world may know God because we preach Christ. And so this, this motivates us in our evangelism as well. It moves us forward in, in the evangelism in God advancing his kingdom. So experience of salvation leads to mission. Well, let's like make one more uh, qualification here of our text. We've talked about verse 1 in chapter 12 being singular, but it is also masculine. And then we make this change to the use in verse 3 and 4 being plural. But then when we get to verse 6, the you there, the you shout and you sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, of Zion for great in your midst, those verbs and, and your, those are feminine. And I've, I wrestled a long time with why that might be. What was the purpose of moving from masculine singular to the corporate world in plural you and then moving to singular feminine you? And I think Alec Motier is the one who helped me see that this is all tied to the Song of Moses in the Exodus. Remember, the Exodus was an overarching theme of the, of the um, examples that were given in chapter 11. And that carries into here. It's fueled with these themes and ideas because when Moses begins his song of praise for the deliverance, the song of Moses, the deliverance out of Egypt, he begins with these words that, find, that we find right in the second half of verse 2. For the Lord God is my strength, for Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Those, that's almost exactly what he says. That praise comes from 
his song. And then when we move to verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. At the end of that song of Moses, Miriam comes, Aaron's sister comes, gathers all the women together with tambourines, and they say almost this exactly same thing. So this is that beautiful picture of knowing the history of Israel and saying it's an individual salvation that exudes forth in corporate worship and it is both men and women who are called to praise in this way. And I think that's why he does this. So when we are thinking about this in the, in, in the application of our lives, I think I've already hit more application than I can swallow today, hopefully for you as well, but also the fact that if God is our salvation, then what does that actually mean? It means that God has sent his son to die on a cross, be raised again so that we would have life. So our salvation is not just given to us, but it is Jesus himself. So we are not ever preaching without Jesus on our lips. We're not singing without Jesus on our lips. We're not giving thanks. We're not praising and proclaiming without Jesus on our lips. We're not going to be generic about this. Now, when we say God, we know what we mean by that. This triune God, one God in three persons, we, we know what we mean. We know these three persons have different roles to carry out, but it is one God. But when you're out in the world and you use the generic term God, when you could use the term Jesus, you could sound like any other form of religion that is not Christian, who is just theistic. So take your stand. Don't be like the king of Judah and say, and have to be warned, if you don't stand now, you will never stand. Take your stand, that it is Jesus that you're proclaiming. It is Jesus that is your song. It so permeates our hymnody. I had like six hymns that we could talk about, and six out of about 50 that talk about singing. But you know some of these hymns. His eye is on the sparrow. You probably all heard that as a spiritual. It was actually written by a congregational minister's wife in the 1800s. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, so I know he watches me. The fact that God cares for the songwriter as we sing that means that we have a song to sing. We sing because we're happy. We sing because we're free. We sing because God is our salvation. So when we have these questions in the world, how should believers respond to this? How should I respond to that? How should I react to these things? We have our answer. We have it every time. We respond with thanksgiving, for the Lord is my salvation. We respond with praise, for the Lord is my salvation. We respond with trust and fearlessness, for the Lord is my salvation. We respond with proclamation, for the Lord is my salvation. We respond with singing, for the Lord is my salvation. Is the Lord your salvation? Because if he is, joy should come out of your life. Proclamation and thanksgiving and praise and singing should flow forth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful for a word of encouragement, of praise and acclamation. We are also grateful, Father, that your word never changes. And so we can look at it written centuries before and it speaks to us today. So our prayer is, Father, that you would ignite us with this joy, that you would ignite our proclamation with the name of Jesus and what he has done to save sinners, that you would ignite our thanksgiving, that that we're not overwhelmed by anything because we're giving thanks for everything. We're giving thanks to you for what you're doing through our lives. We're not fearful of anything, for you are our salvation. You are our strength and our song. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us so that our walk in this world would exalt your name and those who have, you have yet to save would be drawn to you be drawn into your son to repent of their sins, put their trust in him, and that they would be added to our choir. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.